Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This podcast is presented by Facebook, who are collaborating with the UK government and charities to support the pandemic response and limit the spread of misinformation. I want to be in the room where it happens, goes the best-known line from the best-known song in the best-known musical of our age. And it's a sentiment which speaks to a basic truth in Westminster, as in every political centre around the world. Because nothing matters more to those in proximity to power, be they politicians, advisers, officials or journalists, than being in the room when the biggest decisions are taken, having direct sight of, and perhaps influence over, those moments when history is made and lives are forever changed. My guest this week on Westminster Insider was in the room with Boris Johnson through every twist and turn of the most extraordinary three years of his, frankly, extraordinary life, but has until now largely kept his counsel about what he saw. Lee Kane, a former Vote Leave spin doctor, went to work for Johnson back when he was Foreign Secretary in November 2017. As Johnson's new special advisor, Kane quickly became one of his closest and most trusted aides, as the Brexit wars gripping the Conservative Party took hold. Uniquely, Kane remained at Johnson's side after he quit the Cabinet the following summer and helped oversee the covert, and overt, backbench campaign which led Johnson all the way to Downing Street in 2019. Still in his mid-30s, Kane that summer became, as far as I can tell, Downing Street's youngest ever director of comms, overseeing the British government's entire media operation. It was quite the elevation for a state school kid from West Lancashire, with less than two years' Whitehall experience under his belt. Oh, and he brought with him into number 10 one close friend and ally from his Vote Leave days, an eccentric little guy in specs and a hoodie called Dominic Cummings. Kane and Cummings were only in Downing Street for 16 months, but it proved, partly by their own doing one of the most tumultuous periods of modern British history. Kane was in the room throughout the battles with Parliament over a no-deal Brexit, through the 2019 election campaign and the war with the media in its aftermath. And he was there too when the worst pandemic in a century hit the UK, sweeping through Number 10 itself with such force that at one point he was pretty much last man standing. For quite some time, The Guardian reported last year, Lee was running the country. Yet for all of that, the chances are you'd never heard of him, until, perhaps, his acrimonious departure last year, when Lee Kane briefly became front-page news. A bitter power struggle had broken out in Number 10 over the appointment of a new TV spokesperson for Johnson's government, a fight Kane ultimately lost. Former ITV journo Allegra Stratton was given the role, although not for very long, as things turned out, against Kane's wishes despite strong rumours that Johnson had tried to promote him to Chief of Staff to prevent his departure, Kane was swiftly out the door, with Cummings close behind him. Cummings, of course, has since declared war on the entire Number 10 operation, blaming Johnson's wife, Carrie, for forcing both men out. But Kane has never spoken in public at any length. Until now. Today, you'll hear him open up for the first time about what it's actually like to work with Boris Johnson. You don't know crisis comms until you've worked for Boris. About Johnson's resignation from the Cabinet. 
we were sort of prisoner inside <laughs> uh, Carlton, Carlton Gardens. We had to get one of Boris's parliamentary aides to sneak in cheese baguettes and cans of Coke. About his path to number 10. For me, the day he resigned over Chequers was really the day he became Prime Minister. And about what it's like trying to oversee government comms during a deadly pandemic. You can't make good comms of bad policy. You know, we didn't really understand the virus and we were making decisions that were transforming people's lives. What you won't hear is any Dom-style grenades hurled at the Prime Minister or his wife. Kane has set up his own strategic advisory firm, Charlesby, offering comms and strategy advice to corporate clients and is far too loyal, or perhaps too savvy, to start waging war on his former boss. But if you want to hear what it was actually like to be in the room where it happened for Boris Johnson these past few years, then this is well worth an hour of your time. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet Lee Kane and hear about his three chaotic years as Boris Johnson's closest aide. Lee Kane, welcome to Westminster Insider. I wanted to start off by asking you how it was that you first came to be working for Boris Johnson. I remember Vote Leave had a rally that was arranged in Winchester. It was supposed to be, we had, you know, we had a whole strategy of, you know, Boris with the people, getting him out on the bus, doing these sort of stump speeches, trying to frame, you know, this sort of nimble campaign of the people versus the sort of big establishment. I'd sort of been sent down by my boss, Paul Stevenson, to support the team down there and I was meeting up with uh, Boris's comms chief at the time, Will Walden. And I remember that, there had been an error in the emails that had been sent out. So it very quickly fallen into the hands of the Remain campaign, who had set up their own sort of protest at this particular site. So we arrived there and it's total pandemonium. There must be, you know, 300 people or so, probably two-thirds of them are Remainers. I always remember this one chap dressed as a sort of giant gorilla was running around with signs about bendy bananas and sort of, you know, was swinging from this central monument that Boris was due to go up and give this stump speech from. And we then had to go to Boris and explain to him what had happened about 20 minutes before he's due to go up and do this stump speech. And he stopped for a minute and looked at us both and said, so what you're trying to tell me is you've arranged a remain lynch mob for me to go and speak before this morning. And we sort of said, you know, do you want us to pull the event? And we got you know, huge credit for him. We just said, no, absolutely not. We'll go out and we'll do it. And he just walked out and we sort of just walked behind him, me and Will, almost looking like security detail, followed him through this crowd of people, you know, one side cheering, other people booing in his pantomime scene. And he sort of managed to grapple on to this Winchester monument space with this chimpanzee gorilla man pulling at his leg trying to push him off <laughs> as he was giving this stump speech pitch perfect for the sort of messages all in a message discipline absolutely you know bang on while this monkey's pushing him off and I'm sort of trying one hand trying to hold him on and he delivered it we were away and it was you know, the actual professionalism within that to go and deliver the messages, get in there, get it done and get out, I think is one of the things that make him unique. And that was probably, the, you know, one of the calmest situations I had while working, I imagine. <laughs> but from then, you know, you sort of form a bond on these campaigns. And then when an opportunity came, 
when he was in the Foreign Office, I was uh, lucky enough to be chosen. And that must have been an amazing place to go and work, right? You were in your mid-30s and hadn't had a massive job in government before that. FCO, I mean, lovely buildings and nice foreign travel and stuff. I think, you know, moving to the Foreign Office, you know, you're surrounded by very serious people dealing with some really serious issues. But I think the big thing, we had this, you know, overarching problem of Brexit and the Tory government still being incredibly split on the direction. So while, you know, I was very lucky to be able to go to the Kremlin and to the White House with the Foreign Secretary, which again is a great experience having seen Boris sort of walking around, totally ignoring security and strolling around the White House, just saying hello to everybody and being recognised by everybody. We had this larger issue of basically Boris being at odds with most of the rest of the cabinet and particularly the PM and how we were going to you know, manage that. Was doing comms for Boris Johnson in the Foreign Office difficult? I mean, he, he, you sort of came in on the back of a series of gaffes, frankly, didn't you? You know, I always remember the, the joke about the dead bodies in Libya. The only thing they've got to do is clear the dead bodies. Uh, yeah. you know, it was before, before your my time, time yeah. but, <laughs> but nevertheless, you must have been constantly on a knife edge waiting for the next one. I think you don't know crisis comms until you've worked for Boris. It certainly set me up for the rest of my career. I think that's undoubtedly true. Unlike number 10, in the Foreign Office, in terms of there was three special advisers and I was the only one covering comms. And Boris is always the centre of, you know, the media attraction. So you have a situation where, you know, I'd be trying to do bath time my little boy and the phones just never stopped going. I remember there was one that sort of managed to I had to pick him up from a nursery early. You get him back home, the phone rings, and there'd been someone had you know recorded an after dinner speech that Boris had given and given it to Guido Fawkes. And you know, all hell breaks loose, and you sort of got an irate toddler running around, you know, wanting something to eat in a bar time. You're under the hand, you're having to deal with everybody in the lobby. So, in many ways, you know, that kind of thing is a challenge, but it's also it's great, you know, it's great fun often as well. You know, Boris gets into all sorts of scrapes, but it's good fun with it as well. And you, you know, we, we just clicked with a lot of that kind of thing and it, it allowed me to forge a really good bond with him you do it occasionally just like cursing the way that he's just prepared to say things that really most politicians would not be prepared to say uh frequently but <laughs> i remember um you thinking back to that time in winchester i remember that you know will walden i say he was doing this sort of comms job for boris at that point was just so calm there was just chaos around everywhere i remember looking at will and i remember thinking how is he able to stay so calm and you realize that actually once you sort of fall into boris's world if you can't stay calm in a crisis you're in the wrong place because there will be lots of crises and it is incredibly important to keep your head and be able to prioritize what's important and what's just noise and i think an awful lot of time in westminster people confuse those two things and they run around focusing on things that actually aren't that important as it came into i guess it was 2018 brexit was just dominating everything more and more and I would say, Boris Johnson, you guys were putting pressure on the Prime Minister essentially to agree a harder form of Brexit than she was obviously felt able to. It wasn't exactly a slavishly loyal operation to Number 10 at that point, was it, coming out of the FCO? I know it's something that Boris particularly really struggled with. You know, Boris was torn between that party loyalty and the, you know, the loyalty that he had to the wider electorate and I think just his own principles. I think, you know, we could all see very clearly that it was unlikely that May's deal was going to manage to succeed. And I think we just felt this isn't what we campaigned on and this will be bad for the Conservative Party and it'll actually be bad for democracy. People won't feel that, you know, what they voted for is being delivered. So I think there is an obligation at that point to say, actually, we think we're going the wrong way and we should change direction. 
And it all comes to a head that summer at Chequers, of course. For 12 hours, they've been holed up together. But tonight, are the Cabinet finally in the same place on Brexit? What are your memories of that day? Presumably you weren't actually there in the building. Where were you when it was all going off? So I was, yeah, I was in, I was in the Foreign Office. We'd had multiple meetings leading up to it. The, As in just the two of you? So the SPAD, the SPAD team in the Foreign Sec, and also the key Brexiteers in the Cabinet would come to the Foreign Office and had a couple of pre-meetings with, you know, with Boris and the team. And there was a broad agreement that this was the wrong way. I mean, we discussed resignation around the time of the joint report in December and he felt I think rightly with hindsight that it was the wrong issue to go on people really wouldn't understand it and then we sort of got to checkers and he was I think he was still hopeful of being able to turn the ship around and thought you know he had the backing of some of the cabinet ministers and you know we could maybe take this a different way I always felt that you know number 10 were very clear on the trajectory and for me it was going to come a time for him that he either had to tuck into something he didn't believe in or he would have to resign and so he went on the Friday, if I remember correctly. The spads are all sort of waiting, you know, watching Sky News and all the usual things. Just like the rest of us. Just like the rest watching of us. Twitter feed. Just like the rest of us waiting for smoke signals. Discussions today. The cabinet has agreed our collective position on the future of our negotiations with the EU. And it obviously and went on, I think, to about ten o'clock in the evening. They'd taken all the phones off them as well, so we didn't get any word back of what was happening. But I remember I got a call from Boris about quarter past ten, and it was a terrible signal. If you ever go to checkers, the signal around there is broadly appalling. So he was saying to me, you know, it had gone badly, but every other word was breaking up. But you could tell he was unhappy and I said to him you know just go and sleep on it we'll talk again in the morning the next morning I got an op-ed sent through from a spadder at the treasury and I think their number 10 communication strategy time was to tie everybody in with a series of joint op-eds a lever and a remainer to sing like birds in a nest on <laughs> on why checkers was you know the best possible outcome for the country and I remember reading this particular op-ed and thinking... Who, who was Boris supposed to be teaming up with? Philip Hammond. Oh, perfect. I, I mean, I, I, in a pod. I did, yeah, I did feel that maybe that probably was... And, and the fact that the op-ed came from the Treasury, it was very Treasury language on checkers, which was quite a long way away from where we were. And I sort of read it and thought, this is it. If he was unsure of resigning, this will tip him over the edge. And I forwarded it on to him. And just got a reply that it's, you know I can't repeat on on polite or podcasts. Um, <laughs> so we sort of went back and said we're not going to sign up to this. I think that was a strategic mistake because it it was sort of forcing mistake by them. You mean? Yeah, by number ten, it was, it was a mistake by them because I think it forced Boris and others to make a decision. I think if they just let it settle and you sort of let it drip through and people almost get salami sliced, you know, you naturally have to go out in those roles in public and you maybe hedge your bets and slowly but surely you're halfway down the line to agreeing to things and it's difficult to row back. Where they forced a confrontation on the issue very, very early of, you know, you're going to back it or not. So we spoke on Saturday and we said, you know, let's think on the weekend. And But I, I, I knew at that point really that he was, in his mind, he'd sort of set it on resigning. And then we had DD resigning late on the Sunday evening. The apparent compromise was short-lived. In a blow to Theresa May's government, top Brexit negotiator David Davis and two junior Brexit department ministers have stepped down, just two days after the government approved a plan for restarting talks with Brussels. Like midnight or something on the Sunday night. Uh, yeah, and he called up Boris and asked him to resign at the same time. And Boris and I had a chat and, you know, for me, I think if you're going to resign on a point of principle on the biggest issue the country's facing, I don't really see the logic of doing that at midnight. You may as well do it, get the full story out of exactly why you're resigning and let people understand it. So we went through to the next morning um, and we met in Carlton Gardens, which is where the Foreign Secretary's residence, and we had a pre-meet, me and the two other spads, Ben Gascoigne and David Frost, and I think we all agreed that, you know, he 
resignation was the only the only way forward. And was Boris Johnson set in his mind then too that that was the only way forward? Was he still umming and ahhing? So we so we then went to see him, and I think there was an awful lot of pressure from the party for him to back this deal and let's just you know draw a line under it. Come on. We had the PM on the phone. He had the chief whip on the phone. They were all saying, you know, give it a few more months. But myself and particularly Ben, we were pretty adamant with him. That I think you've got to resign. You sign up to this, and you lose, you lose all credibility in terms of your position as being someone who's there to deliver Brexit. We think it should be. We're always sort of discussing it. We had the full Sky News chopper out. You know, the entire gaggle of the lobby were all outside these gates. So we were sort of prisoner inside. <laughs> Uh, Carlton, Carlton Gardens. We had to get one of Boris's parliamentary aides to sneak in cheese baguettes and cans of Coke because we couldn't go out for lunch. I did the classic spad trick of, you know, if you've got a difficult issue, just don't answer your phone, which is, you know, for those who don't know, it's the sort of code for whatever you're thinking is happening probably is happening, but I'm not going to answer the phone and confirm it. And eventually, it was after Boris spoke to the PM that number 10 leaked that he was he was going to leave. So then I remember getting on the phone to Laura Koonsberg and giving our sort of rationale and then, you know, straight to work to try and shape much of the debate. News breaking that uh, Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, has also resigned from Theresa May's cabinet. There were mutterings here in Westminster because nobody had heard from him. It was well known. Was your concern that if he didn't resign at that point, he would be discredited in the eyes of the party faithful, essentially? Is that the corner you could see around? Yeah, I think I think so. I think, you know, as an advisor, you know, most things, broadly, I think most things don't overly matter. You have a machine around you, much of what happens will continue to rumble on. I think there are those big political moments when you've got to make the right call. And I look back on that and think, you know, the advice that as a team we provided, Boris, was spot on for the time, which was simply that, you have to be the person who is carrying this Brexit flame. This is a moment when actually people will feel that you are taking some personal pain. You know, he was he loved being foreign secretary. I think it's a great job. And he took personal pain and a huge amount of risk to potentially be in the wilderness on the back benches because of what he believed in. And I think that was entirely the correct decision. And I think, you know, we were all very confident that's the correct decision. And personally, I, I could see a very clear path for him to go to number 10 from that point. I don't know how much he was thinking of that at that point, but I certainly could. And it surprised me how many people in the sort of commentaria and, you know, in and around Westminster said, well, that's it, his career's over, he's done. And I never really understood that because it seemed quite obvious the trajectory of where things were going to go. I remember it at the time. He sort of spent then those months sort of languishing on the back benches, didn't he? And, and definitely people saying it's over for him when she gets the Brexit deal through, he's never coming back to Cabinet. And I remember you and him... He were basically he was down to a pretty small team then as a backbench MP. Were there moments in those sort of wilderness months, if you like, when you were worried that you'd given the wrong advice and that actually this really was as far as Boris Johnson was going to go? No, to be honest. I mean, it was interesting to see, you know, as soon as he resigned, how hard it was even for a, you know, big political beast like him to almost stay relevant. You know, when initially. He left, we had the sort of Chuck Checkers campaign, which was designed to continue the pressure on Number 10 to move Brexit to a place that we think could be a success. But you sort of notice that, to start with, those op-eds and interviews are on the front pages, and then they slowly start to drift around back into the sort of comment pages, and you can feel the relevance sliding away. And I think, you know, he was concerned at that. A lot of people did walk away from him. 
I always felt as you know there's an obligation because I was someone who had been very full throttle in the fact that I think resignation was the right way. I think you know if you give someone that advice, there's an obligation to stay around and see it through. Were people telling you you were crazy to stick around? Yeah, a lot, a lot of people. The general consensus was that his career was finished, and mine would be if I hung around too. And you know, we, I, I remember we'd sort of we'd spend a lot of times in. Because he had a sort of, you know, given like a punishment office right in the sort of basement. It was like a student <laughs> hall's like breeze block. In Portcullis House. Yeah, it was a sort of appalling office. We were all small uh, parliamentary teams sort of cramped into. And we used to sit often days, like um, for any of your slightly older listeners, like an episode of Porridge with uh, <laughs> Fletcher and Godber, you know, sort of us. Uh, the young apprentice taking in all these pearls of wisdom from the old political sage. Now all the form, don't you? You have been here before? No, I've never been here before, but it's all the same. Porridge is porridge, isn't it? First time for me. Don't know how I'll get through. Ah, oh, cheer up. Could be worse. State this country's in, you could be free, couldn't you? Right? <laughs> and, you know, we just spent a lot of time chewing the fat and looking at where things were going to go. And I think, you know, a lot of it was actually keeping his morale up at that point. But, you know, despite, I think, what people said in terms of where he was heading and the political weather I, I, for me I just always felt that Theresa May wasn't going to be able to get that deal through and he you know taken personal pain to object to that and that would set him up uniquely to be the person the party turned to when there was the next moment of crisis. And I always remember he spoke at that rally didn't he at Tory conference that autumn he had a big checkers rally and the reception he got was ridiculous <laughs> compared my, to what the Prime Minister my got. My favourite conference actually of <laughs> All of them. I remember speaking to the con home team and saying, actually, you know, would you be able to set us up a rally? Because again, you know, if you're going to be in those places, you may as well make noise and get the argument across. You know, it became the set piece of conference, really. And even him walking from the dressing room through to the stage was, you know, you remember the sort of media scenes. There's a huge scrum incredibly unsafe cameras flying everywhere people falling over and it's a level of sort of almost rock star politics he sort of brings this is the moment to chuck checkers it is a constitutional outrage it's not taking back control it's forfeiting control and by the way they know it in brussels again it just showed his popularity with the base and i think for me the day he resigned over Chequers was really the day he became Prime Minister. And yet, weirdly, he did end up voting for May's deal come the following spring. Presumably he felt he had no choice. Was that a agonising decision, a misstep? I think it comes back to that position of being torn between party loyalties, leadership loyalties. I think on that third time, there's a lot of people around him saying, you know, you've got to show some sort of party loyalty. We think we're close. And I think he agonised it for a long time and backed it. I think ultimately it's all slightly irrelevant. And he didn't really register with the wider Conservative membership of the public. And then a couple of months after that, Theresa May's on her way out and you must have known then that your chance had come. But I do remember even then there was this sort of received wisdom around Westminster that he was going to struggle to get the support of enough MPs to get himself onto the final ballot. And, of course, he absolutely skied it in the end. Did you have those concerns at the start that he was going to struggle like that? We were concerned, I think, for that leadership campaign, especially on the MP side, a huge amount of credit should go to James Wharton and Gavin Williamson. The three of us ran, a, I think, a pretty impressive operation. And I think Gavin, in particular, is a man who understands politics and power like few others. And the way he managed, I think, to bring a lot of people over early on and to create a momentum. And I think Boris, once you get people in front of him, is very persuasive. I think 
the MPs needed to believe that he was serious. They wanted to know he'd be in it to the end no matter what. And once he was onto that ballot down to the final two, he must have been in no doubt who was going to win that contest. I think, to be honest, it was when the first ballot dropped, he was far and away clear of second and third. And at that point, I think we all, no one said it, but I think we all knew that we'd have to make an almighty calamity for him not to to bring that home. You know, you're sort of talking to Tory members travelling around the country to, you know, a lot of these venues and you could just feel how popular it was. It just, it was palpable when you'd walk into rooms and they both do rallies and things like that. You could just, you could just feel it. Boris Johnson is set to walk in this door behind me tomorrow as Britain's next Prime Minister, realising a long-held ambition. The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. So Boris Johnson had achieved his lifelong goal of becoming, if not quite, world king, at least supplanting his old friend David Cameron, yeah, right, as British Prime Minister. Coming up in part two, we'll hear Lee Kane's reflections on his chaotic 16 months in Downing Street, covering one Brexit renegotiation, an almighty battle with Parliament, a landslide general election and a global pandemic, not to mention his own controversial departure. Stay with us. Facebook is collaborating with partners in the UK to support the pandemic response. They've teamed up with over 80 fact-checking organisations globally, covering over 60 languages, to reduce the spread of COVID-19 misinformation on their platforms. And they have worked with fact-checkers such as Full Fact in the UK to develop multilingual media literacy campaigns that provided millions of people with tips for spotting false news. Get the full story at about.fb.com forward slash actions forward slash UK. So you're into Downing Street in the summer of 2019 and you're what, the youngest director of comms anyone can remember ever pretty much yeah i think so i possibly am yeah that must have been a baptism of fire for you personally i mean there can't really be that much preparation for a job like that initially i turned it down i just remember that thinking you know you look at the people are sort of doing these jobs and just how much it just overwhelms everything else and a part of me sort of had already felt slightly vindicated in the fact that you know boris was now in number 10 he's going to be prime minister i was sort of thinking of going to do something else I said that to the PM, but um, it's quite difficult to say no to. And him and Eddie Lister made a you know a good pitch and asked me to do the job. And it's a huge job. It's the biggest communication job in the country. I remember walking into Number Ten and walking into the director of comms office. Which... Well, you used to get told off all the time when you were a spam. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, not very often. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it's this sort of oak-panelled, huge office. I think it was Gordon Brown's office at one point as well. So it's, you know, it's a lot of history. And you walk out and there's this, you know, press team just totally humming and you've got to start making, you know, big decisions. And was it your idea to bring Dominic Cummings into uh, into number 10? He's obviously a close friend of yours. I mean, in part. I mean, Dominic had been in and around our sort of group since the referendum. So even in the Foreign Office... Boris and I would meet in Carlton Gardens with Dom and talk about politics. But Dominic was always very clear that he was finished with politics. But I think during the sort of transition, I mean, we had one meeting with the number 10 PPS. It just didn't go particularly well. It was a bit unstructured. Boris doesn't often show 
much, but I could see that he was quite frustrated at how the meeting had gone. And I remember going to him afterwards and saying that, you know, you, you need a chief of staff. You need somebody who's going to be able to grip the machine and drive everybody around you. Or, you know, we've got this huge crisis we've got to walk straight into with Brexit and we're not going to get through it. And he agreed. And I said, you know, if it was me, I'd be calling up Dominic. But, you know, if you've got other names and other people, you should be thinking of them as well. And I think uh, Dominic I think, was in Greece at the time and he was he arranged to go and pretty much meet him as soon as he was back. And they sort of thrashed things out and he came on board. And, you know, it was a good team. It was a good team. That autumn was chaotic, wasn't it? It was one thing after another with the Brexit and the deal and with Parliament and no deal and all the rest of it. Were you just leading on messaging then or were you actually one of the senior advisors and telling Boris what you think he ought to be doing? You know, I was lucky that because particularly the way things had developed in the previous couple of years that, you know, I was always one of those people in the room. I think, you know, that would often be sort of myself, Dom and Boris for many things. I think in those early days, we knew that the EU had to believe that we would walk away without a deal. So we knew we had to implement a bit of a madman strategy. We had to prepare for that. I think we would have done. That was where we were. That caused a lot of unhappiness, I think, in, in Whitehall, I think, you know, in the House, all over the place. But they did start to believe that these guys actually might do it. I think unlike Theresa May, Zero, where everybody knew that they'd never leave without a deal, we created that 5%, 10% chance that allowed us the space to bring in negotiations. But with that came, I think, a lot of problems too. Obviously, the sort of Ben Act and everything else put a put a stop to some of this. So, we, you know, different ways with prorogation sort of came on and all the, you know, how that went. The decision to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament was unlawful because it had the effect of frustrating or preventing the ability of Parliament... We were always thinking of an election. And the strategy, again, is... The public need to see that we've done everything possible to try and fix this problem. So while everybody was saying, you know, the prorogation was a total disaster, this is an appalling thing, it signalled to the public that the PM was willing to do everything possible to get this deal through. And all of those things were helping our broader strategy. I think one of the great things about Dominic is all of that chaos he does stay super calm and is always like, OK, that's not worked. Where's our next avenue? Where can we next take it? But the one moment it felt to me like they could have had you, they did have you, is when they weren't voting for an election. And at that point, you must have been a bit panicking because actually there was nothing that the PM could do until they agreed to that. No, but I think we all banked on the fact that they wouldn't sit there for week after week and say, we're not willing to have an election. The whole of Parliament is in total stasis. Nothing is moving. There is an increasing crisis. The public would not thank an opposition party that says, well, we're not going to fix it and just keep it in that stasis. So it actually it, it moved very, very quickly. So maybe it would have been interesting if it had carried on, you know, what would the rest of the Tory party have done? But I think we all felt that it wouldn't carry on for long and it didn't. And then you're on the election campaign, as you say, with a, 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 a very oppressive messaging and all the rest of it. Just tell us about the Boris Johnson as a campaigner, because he obviously has this image of being slightly all over the place a lot of the time, not across the detail of things, says things he shouldn't. Yeah, in a campaign, he seems to be quite a different beast, really. I think that's him in a sort of crisis generally in the sense of, you know, if he knows it really matters in those sort of like, the campaign really crystallises that, he sort of turns a switch his ability to have a rigid message discipline right throughout the campaign, no matter where it is, his ability to connect with people, you know, in the street and, you know, they like him. 
they know that hey you know he's he's not one of us he's not got the same sort of background but they like him because he's authentic they like him because you know they think they could have a pint with him and it'd be fun he's got that ability that he's uniquely himself and that's such a formidable asset on the campaign i think when you back that with a really good well-researched campaign behind it so you know the messages that you're delivering are landing with the audiences that you need to it's a pretty unbeatable combination and i think that's what we had i know you talked before about ignoring the noise around politics sometimes what did you think about all the noise in the election around things like when he wouldn't do an interview with andrew neil and everyone thought that was a really big deal at the time there is of course still one to be done boris johnson the prime minister We have been asking him for weeks now to give us a date, a time, a venue. As of now, none has been forthcoming. It's a classic example, Andrew Neil, situation of being able to separate what, you know, Westminster thinks important and what actually is important. I know it's a bit of a shock to many people in Westminster, but most people have no idea who Andrew Neil is. They just, you know, they just don't. But I think, you know, because we're all in this bubble and we're all obsessed politicos, we you sort of assume that everyone else carries that same knowledge. So we, you know, we knew at that point we were ahead. We knew our messages were landing. We had the PM out in these local areas delivering our messages. And if Westminster wants to to go off talking about Andrew Neil and interviews that aren't happening. Great, because that is not going to impact at all on our campaign and we can focus on what's important. Downing Street, where Boris Johnson has promised to repay the trust of voters after leading the Conservatives to an extraordinary election victory. And so he wins this majority and obviously suddenly a hugely most powerful leader we've had in this country since Tony Blair, I guess, in his heyday in terms of the, the numbers he's got in Parliament. Your approach then changed a bit and, and the number 10 operation became quite aggressive towards the media and, and there was this boycott of the Today programme and there was quite big rows with members of the lobby. Was that an intentional strategy or did you get, in retrospect, a bit carried away? We'd fallen into a situation where, you know, we had certain broadcasters were coming out that were likening the Prime Minister to Vladimir Putin, interviewers who would basically get cabinet ministers on, you know, they would totally ignore any sort of time limits and just basically shout at them for 15 20 minutes in order to get sort of like viral clips and and i don't think anybody wins in those sort of spaces so we were trying to change some of that discourse too i think you know in terms of the bbc i think there was a lack of balance particularly on the brexit debate and i think you know did we always get our responses right in that period of time definitely not i think there's certainly a couple of occasions when i you know i definitely got things wrong but I think if you look at how some of those BBC policies have changed now, moving people into different parts of the country, hopefully being more reflective of the country, I think that's all a positive thing. But I should say with that as well, I think, you know, when we moved into COVID, you know, I tried to learn some of the lessons a little bit from that point. I realised, you know, we were probably a bit too pugnacious and sometimes and that, that was not always getting the results we needed. And it, I think it was somewhat counterproductive. Let's talk about COVID then. I mean, you see, as you say, you were in the room the whole time with with the PM, what was it like in those early weeks, like watching this thing unfold? Obviously, initially, no one realised what it was going to become. Do you know, it's actually, a, to some degree, it's a gradual thing. Because I mean, when we first came in following the election, you have this sort of space where we thought, great, we've, you know, we've just secured this huge majority. We can now look to get involved in the things that, you know, we want to deliver. You know, we're talking about levelling up social mobility things, you know, all these other agendas that we're looking to drive forward. Great, we can sort of really start to change things. 
you could sort of see we were looking at the scenes in China and we, you know you're monitoring things and you know we get lots of information about this actually could be quite serious and I think it wasn't probably until Italy I mean obviously we were dealing with it before the scenes in Italy started to come on board and I think we all knew the seriousness of it, but I think the public tuned in when they saw what was happening in Italy and I think that really turned things up in government. Good evening. Within the past couple of hours, the Italian Prime Minister has announced restrictions on movement across the entire country. Prime Minister has told people to stay at home except for urgent need. The right decision is to stay home. And of course the comms of all of that was massively important then. It goes beyond the sort of you know, trying to make the government look good, which is obviously a big part of, of what your job would have been, into, like, vitally important public health messaging that people are going to live or die on. And that, again, is a big step change for someone. How did you approach that and how did you feel that went? You can't make good comms of bad policy. And I think one of the challenges early on is we were making policy in sort of real time. You know, we didn't really understand the virus and we were making decisions that were transforming people's lives can you go to work can you go to school can you meet so many people you know these are like fundamental freedoms that we were slowly sort of rolling back and i think people really underestimate the challenge of that so from a comms perspective you know i was often in the room with the pm trying to get the policy in the right place so that we could communicate something that you know was sensible and i think some of those early stages the policy just wasn't in the right place i think people would too often trying to make compromises and it was it came to that constant conflict between health and economic issues you know and one of the things that always stayed moving in the early days was should we close the pubs and we had there was a you know there's a long conversation in the cabinet room with all the sort of key people saying you know we need to close we should close the pubs but then there's a sort of pushback from you know those with economic interests saying well actually you know, it's a this is huge, huge industry. All these jobs will be lost. We need a whole scheme to support the industry. And we ended up with this compromise space of, well, let's leave the pubs open, but tell people not to go. And, you know, I think the communicators in the room were sort of, you know, very forthright in saying, well, this is obviously not going to hold up. As soon as it hits the media, this will be pulled apart and we're best just closing the pubs now. But that's not where we ended up. And I think that's just one of those examples of poor policy. But I think people did learn from that. And after, you know, after you go through that once or twice, I think people start, you know, listening to the importance of having good communication strategy at the very centre of policy development. Protect yourself. Protect others. Protect the NHS. The sort of first iterations of the COVID campaigns were pretty poor. I don't know if you sort of remember them now. It's sort of, there was, um, it was a sort of, uh, protect yourself and others I think it was the, was the phrase and there would be sort of like a green handprint that was on like a poster oh, with lots yeah. of words we didn't have time to develop them. so when that came across our desk you've just got to get something out because it's you know public health but you could see it was a poor quality it wasn't really clear what you're trying to achieve so again while you're sort of in the day to day we had to basically take that out and we start again we had to start from scratch and come up with a whole new sort of campaign you'd normally have a year, six months to plan this stuff in an election campaign. You're doing it straight off the ground. And I think that was the initial challenge to get me. But I think we very quickly managed to get hold of these things. The Stay Home campaign was basically thought by myself and a chap named uh, Ben Gerin, who we'd brought in. We'd worked with him on the election. And he came in to head up some of our digital operation. You know, the importance of a, 
of a campaign in that sort of surrounding is you need to have a clear call to action. You know, what is it that we need the public to do? You know, we need to just be very concise, very clear. And I think it's one of those slight eureka moments where you develop something and you just go, this is, this is perfect for what we want. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. And we threw it into the field to test it through the focus groups and things. And people absolutely, they just got it straight away. Everybody got it and what they need to do. And then that campaign and that messaging had a huge impact. And it, to me, it was the same as when, you know, we were working on the referendum and sort of Don came up with, uh, you know, take back control. You know, and then same with get Brexit done. You know, you felt you've got something that's really going to chime into that sort of public mood and I think you you always know these things work almost when a few months later they start to be parodied and you're sort of seeing them on sort of you know comedy shows you know and on billboards everywhere and you sort of think okay this has been a you know really effective campaign. At the same time you had a prime minister who was going on telly talking about shaking people's hands in hospitals and clearly umming and ahhing a bit about some of the measures that he ultimately had to take. I'm shaking hands continuously. I was at a hospital the other night where there were actually a few coronavirus patients and I shook hands with everybody. Uh, you'll be that must make it more challenging from a professional commerce point of view when he's, you've got him saying things like that. Yes, I think I think with all those things, you've got to remember again, we're, we're talking about real-time information and real-time policy. So, you know, we were learning about this virus as we went. I think, you know... Obviously, we didn't get everything right because of that, and some of those early messages weren't in the right place. You're not telling me you advised him to go and go on telly and tell people you've been shaking hands in a COVID <laughs> hospital. No, no, I think I think that that wasn't on the official briefing document. It's 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 safe to say, but you know, people do make mistakes and this sort of stuff. And I'm sure you know uh, the, the prime minister, if he could go back to the start of that you know, would say the same thing again. And I think, you know, we did quickly get to speed about the, what the right messaging was. And I think actually one of the things of those on-camera briefings and the information that we managed to get straight at the public using the Prime Minister, but also being, you know, variably supported by Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, you know, almost became the sort of, you know, Chris become the doctor of the nation almost. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. I think that slide, for me please. was the most slide, important step slide, we took please. during the crisis because, as I say, you know, we had huge numbers of people watching it, 10 million a day, everybody tuning in. It became a sort of focal point of lockdown for everybody. And being able to get those core messages about what people needed to do, you know, how things were developing and going straight to individuals in the home was, I think, was totally game-changing and showed real government grip. I think I'd agree with that, except that I still would say, again, you had a prime minister who wasn't always very good at delivering the clear message he needed to. Was that not a frustration sometimes? I think with the PM, he had to wrestle with a huge, huge issue, which is we all understood the, the health connotations. You know, we all knew the challenge this virus was posing. On the economic front, you know, that will be felt for decades to come. And I think it's very easy, A, with hindsight and also to be like myself, an advisor, and say, oh, this is what you should do, or that's what you should do. He's the prime minister. He's the one that gets judged by history. He has to make these decisions. And I think he was acutely aware of the devastation this could cause economically. So was always sort of looking at, you know, obviously the first duty of any administration is to save lives. But you also want to limit the economic pain that people are going to suffer. You want to limit the amount of people that are going to be out of their jobs, you know, that could lose homes, all these other things that come from that and also the negative health costs of that, both, you know, physical health and mental health that we're starting to see now. And he's got to wrestle with that. So, I, you know, I think it's understandable that sometimes you're, you know, not just saying, well, this is what we're going to do and we're going to go right ahead with it. And I think the right decisions were always made. 
Um, sometimes maybe we could have gone a bit earlier, potentially, but you know the right decisions were always made. It was, and I think it's only right that the prime minister should be analysing all the other options and stress testing that. And you know, it is not easy to lock down an entire country. This is, you know, if I said this to you two years ago, you'd think I would start raving mad to say this is what the government was going to do. Yeah, that's where we are, and you know, it's it's a big decision to take. And then in the middle of all that, the prime minister gets COVID. Dominic Cummings get COVID. Everyone in number 10 gets COVID. You got COVID as well, did you? Mild, but I did. I mean, extraordinary situation. Suddenly the place essentially empties out. The Guardian has reported that for some extensive period of time, Lee Kane was essentially running the country. Was it really like that? It's a high point. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great government. I mean, COVID did sweep through number 10. You know, we were sort of almost ground zero, I think, at one point. And I think when the PM fell sick i think that was um you know i think that was a moment that rocked the country generally i think in the building it was like you know a a friend being you know in in a life-threatening situation and and you you've you've got to then manage a crisis while sort of dealing with that and you could see everybody was in shock but you know we didn't have you know there wasn't eddie lister there wasn't dominic cummings i was the most senior political person in the building Dominic Raab was thankfully for everybody in charge of the country, um, and did you know did a did a fantastic job. And you but know, you were essentially making big calls every day about how the country should be moving because there was no one else to make them, right? Well, I mean, you know, I was offering my advice to Dominic Raab, who's the first secretary. I had a good understanding of what the PM would think and what he would want in those situations, and you know, I'd worked around a long time, so you can you can sort of have a good a good guess of what their instincts would be and you can offer your advice with that in mind. A year before that you've been sat in this little office in Portcullis House with just you and Boris Johnson people saying he was finished and a year later you know you're the most senior political advisor in the country during a global crisis. I mean did you have moments where you're like what is going on? I remember the evening the PM went into uh, intensive care and the PPS calling me up and sort of saying you know, the PM's very unwell going to intensive care we need you to come in um, you know, the PM had told me before he went into hospital that he wanted Dominic Raab to definitely take over. So, you know, I remember ringing up Dominic Raab on, on the way and saying, you know, you might want to be around because you might have to, you know, step up into that. And again, those sorts of moments are quite surreal when you're in those conversations and arriving into the cabinet secretary's room and, you know, being the only political person in the room. It was, you know, myself and Helen McNamara, Mark Sedwell, James Slack, and the, uh, Martin Rouse PPS with, you know, then Dominic Raab comes in and you're sort of making these decisions that the country have no idea how ill the Prime Minister is at that point and you're sort of trying to set up a, a system to, you know, carry on going. The Prime Minister has been under the care of doctors in a hospital in London and he is being now admitted into intensive care with those... For me, I mean, I'm more than most of the time where, you know, you're, you're, say you're, you're worried about a friend, you're also just desperately concerned if you know if, if the worst happens what does that mean for the country because i think it would have been just so chaotic because the conservative party just hold together and without sort of going through the process of a leadership contest which you know should have come and it's the last thing anyone needed at that point so you know the whole thing was very very intense and very stressful but uh, for me it's a period i'm you know incredibly proud of and incredibly proud of the team around you know there was so many absolutely brilliant people in that building and, you know, we're sort of knocking on my door saying, you know, we're being told to work remotely. I want to come in. I want to do something. I want to, you know, help in this moment of crisis. We start to come out of lockdown and then a story breaks about your good friend Dominic Cummings. I wonder if this would come up. I thought I thought we should probably raise it. Um, <laughs> Travelling to the north of England in the middle of lockdown when 
he really shouldn't have done. Just again, from a comms perspective, I mean, that was that was a pretty chaotic few days. He started off by stonewalling the story, then we had him out in the Rose Garden. Do you wince when you look back on that whole weekend? Uh, I think it's safe to say it's not our finest hour. Um, I think, you know, Dominic has, himself has sort of said that, you know, he might have uh, done things slightly differently in hindsight. And, you know, I think there are just certain times you just have to hold your hands up and say, you know, you um, things didn't go well. I believe I made the right judgment, though I can understand that others may disagree with that. I've explained all of the above to the Prime Minister. There's a reason why administrations normally fold and you turn in crises after three or four days because the pressure mounts and you can... It was really interesting how you could feel the pressure in the building. You know, more and more people were coming out to criticise the things. It was sort of building up. And, you know, I remember sort of saying to the PM, you know, if he gives uh, Dominic his support, this will be the hardest thing he said that I had to withstand because the pressure will be palpable. But the feeling was just that Dominic was someone, we, you know, we really valued. The PM is incredibly loyal in those situations. You know, we saw it with Priti Patel and, you know, with other you know senior cabinet ministers. He does like to throw support around them. And, and that's what he did in that situation. But it was, you know... It was it was a tough situation. It certainly wasn't our best, and had a negative effect on all that good work you'd done on the comms in terms of stay home and stuff. It must have been incredibly frustrating for you, having got that message out to see it. You know, you saw the way the focus groups, I'm sure, were coming back. People saying, "Well, if he doesn't have to do it, why do I have to do it?" I think that's slightly overblown in you know the impact that it had on the public. I mean, the public were genuinely terrified of this. You know, of COVID, people. If anything, actually, it was um, there was a reluctance for things returning to normal when we started to do so it, uh, the idea that you know people were one moment terrified for their safety of this killer virus the next minute because dominic cummings has gone to barna castle suddenly gonna leave their homes and have total abandonment of the you know any fear of the virus is is you know it, it's a nonsense but i think it you know um as i say it wasn't our finest hour and not something that i think you know we got right dominic cummings has been very forthright about the autumn of that year and how he'd really tried extremely hard the way he frames it to convince the PM to move it back into a, a, another lockdown as the sage scientists were recommending. Were you in those meetings? Did you watch that play out and, and was it as he, he tells it? Yeah, you know, I was in all those meetings and again, I could sort of only really repeat what I was saying before, which is, you know, they were difficult times and these are big decisions and we were, you know, we, you're balancing the health and the economic. And I think I think it is safe to say that, you know, Dominic and the Prime Minister had slightly different views on COVID. I think where they'd been in total lockstep on Brexit, I think COVID maybe showed that, you know, areas where it was splintering and they wanted to sort of, you know, go slightly different directions and that bubbled up a little bit. But, you know, again, it's easy to say we should have done X, we should have done Y. These are difficult, difficult decisions. And that autumn you embark on the construction of a, a new media suite which is in Downey Street, which is obviously something you could see and needed mm. to be modernised. screens you can see some flags, a podium, there's a screen in there for presentations and it all looks very blue. Uh, there is also, in the corner, someone spotted a little red <laughs> vacuum cleaner which almost... During Covid, when we're doing the daily press conferences, we're using one of the upstairs rooms in Downing Street. It looks very sort of shabby, but, you know, the I whole thing, it. you know, it's not... It's not pretty. It's not great, right? It's not great. It's not fit for purpose. You know, it has none of the sort of technology fitted in that you need. The whole thing is, you know, it's... it's, it's they used to wheel that big telly and it was a bit like being at school, wasn't it? When the teacher <laughs> would get the VHS out for you to watch Film the... day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's it, you know, it, 
the whole thing was pretty preposterous in terms of how we had to deal with these things. You know, for me, this was a necessity. We needed to build an up-to-date studio that we could use for a, you know, ideally for the daily press conferences, but all sorts of things. You know, whether it's press conferences with world leaders, we didn't have a specific media centre that you know again to me it's just it's so outdated that we didn't as you say you obviously wanted it to be used for a, a daily press conference there's been a lot written about the recruitment process around finding someone to do that can you tell us exactly what did happen there i mean i, I don't think it's overly fair to go into sort of you know individual recruitment policy there was a difference of opinion though yeah i don't think i'm probably not breaking any state secrets to say that um Obviously, it's a very difficult job. I wanted to have somebody leading, you know, maybe a sort of weekly press conference where we could, you know, it's a great place to get messages straight to the public. You know, you've got to get the right fit for that. The final two candidates were great. I personally thought um, we should have gone one way and the PM, whose ultimate decision it is, wanted to go a different way. I didn't think that would work and, you know, it, sadly it didn't. But, you know, um, it's, it's ultimately it's his decision in terms of what to do. Soon after that comes your own departure then from Downing Street. And again, an awful lot was written about that. Can you tell us what really happened? You'll be sadly disappointed with broadly how mundane the actual departure was. I mean, I'd, you know, I said before, I, you know, I, I was in two minds whether to move into Downing Street in, in the first place. And I certainly didn't want to stay for the full five years you know, those those jobs, I don't think until you do them, you really appreciate just how much you have to give to sort of be in those particular jobs. And it's great fun. And, there's, you know, it's a real honour to be in that building. But, you know, I, I think if you stay in them too long, it doesn't do, doesn't do you any good, is my general view. I've always wanted to go and run my own business. It was the next sort of challenge for me. I'll... I'll leave in the in the new year, and you know, well, I've got Brexit done. That feels like a nice bookend to my career of starting. Vote leave, Brexit finishing. So I went, you know, I went and spoke to the PM and said to him, "Listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave the new year. I'll help you find a replacement." And we had a conversation, and um, he refused to <laughs> to engage with that. And um, then uh, the cabinet secretary sort of came up to me and said, "You know, we, we the PM wants to go and see you at Checkers and." So we went to Checkers and we had a chat and, you know, we spoke about other roles within the building. You wanted to make your chief of staff? Yeah, that's what we discussed. Um, then, you know, I said to him, you know, I need, I, you know, I need a bit of time to think of this because it's a big job to it's take. It's a bigger job. It's, it's a big job to take. And I knew if I did it, I'd have to be there till after the next election. My little boy's... Uh, He's five today and the day this is published. Oh, so, um, my yeah, my little boy, I was sort of thinking you know, he's not gonna he's gonna be sort of by the time the next election comes, he's gonna be, you know, nearly nine, whatever it'll be. It's a long time to sort of not be that present. So I'd said to the PM, you know, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do. And he texted me on a Saturday and said, Come and meet me tomorrow, come and turn to number ten, we'll have lunch and we'll chat about things. So I went to the flat and I remember he was making sausage and mash for us to to eat in the garden. Boris Johnson's own sausage and mash. Indeed, from, made from his own very hands. I, you know, the sausage was great. After the mash was was a little lumpy. Um, <laughs> if I'm gonna, if I'm, if I'm gonna critique, it was a, it was a little lumpy. But broadly, a good solid seven out of ten. Uh, Neil and and over that, he was really kind and you know was sort of pretty adamant that he wanted me to to stay. But I think at that point, I'd already made my decision to go and and you know was pretty adamant to stick by it. It has been widely reported, as you know, that the. Um Prime Minister's now wife played a pretty key role in your departure. Any truth in that? 
honestly, I, you know, I don't know. I've read the same reports that, you know, you would have read. I can only go with what I was told by the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister asked me to do, a, you know, a big job. I, you know, decided it wasn't right for me and, and um, didn't do it. But your friend Dominic Cummings has spoken extensively about her in quite an aggressive passionate I should maybe say why you know do you basically support what he's said about all of that um generally speak I mean you know I, I'll let Dom speak for Dom you know if you want to subscribe to his substack I'm sure there's you know many, him to many, come on the podcast. many more words you can find from Dominic Cummins I can't afford his words in a phone <laughs> charges a fortune so you know and broadly speaking you know I'm not uh, I, I never broadly like, you know, having uh, discussions on the PM's private life. You know, we always used to say, as a sort of golden rule when I was working for Boris, that I'd never talk about his private life. And I think commenting about his wife certainly comes under that umbrella. Looking to the future, we've talked a lot about some of your ideas for how government comms could be improved. We've talked about the media suite and the idea of a, of a, of a regular press conference and so on. You, you've also written a, a paper for the Institute for Government, which talks about a more wholesale reform of the government comms service just explain to us for laymen who are understanding you know this idea about creating a sort of centralized service and why that would improve things for the country one of the struggles we found in government is you know as a government we want to speak with one voice you know the public don't see the difference between the department of health and the department of transport they just see the government you know we also had situations where during covid we're putting things out from you know the cabinet office and you know the public don't know what the cabinet office is. They're like, is, I don't is, even know what the is, cabinet office is. <laughs> is. Is this the government that I'm being told to stay at home? I, I don't know. So I think you know, a simplifying those things and having you know a government voice that means that you know everybody understands what the overall government message is. Everybody knows what they should be communicating. And I mean, some people would say, you know, why do we even need all these thousands of press officers? Because essentially, aren't you all just doing is trying to spin what the government's doing to make it look better? Is there like a public good? In, I'm not talking about during a crisis like COVID, but in, in normal times, is there actually a public good in what you guys, your team, are doing? One of the things to talk about in the report is when I joined government, I was told there was 4,000 government communicators, which, you know, seems like a lot. I then asked for an audit. It turns out there was 8,000 government communicators. So there was, you know, there's 4,000 we didn't know about. And then... That is extraordinary, then 8,000 then, press officers. Then when I spoke about the need to, you know, reduce the headcount, was told that, you know, that's absolutely impossible. These people are all absolutely vital. You know, 4,000, we didn't know existed 10 minutes ago. And, you know, they're all now absolutely vital, you know. There is no way that the government needs 8,000 government communicators. If that was in a commercial setting, you would have nowhere near those numbers. You know, I, I ran political campaigns where we'd have 15 to 30 people on a, you know, a huge political campaign. Yet, you know, the Home Office has 250 press officers. So, you know, a lot of my suggestions were reducing the headcounts, increasing the budgets for, you know, improved salaries for those that remain to get high quality people, having improved training. So when we do fall into a crisis like COVID, we've got more people who can deliver proper campaigns. What's your view of the lobby now, having worked so closely, maybe with them is not the right word, but, you know, next to them? There's always a natural friction between the job that, you know, that I was doing as director of communications and the lobby. It's natural, you know. I, I yeah, but felt, some of your predecessors absolutely hate the lobby. I've spoken to some of them frothing about them. Yeah, it's funny. Do you feel like that? No, not at all, actually. And, and that's the, you know, I, I say there's always a natural friction. I mean, I've been on both sides of it. So, you know, I think a lot of my predecessors, you know, often hadn't been spads. You know, they hadn't sort of come through that route. They're normally coming from big jobs elsewhere. 
So, you know, I've had the other relationships with the lobby where, you know, you're sort of moving around information as currency and you're fully aware of how the system works. So there are times when you look at it and there are some brilliant stories to get things the things with you know the country wouldn't find out without you know great journalists ferreting around and finding out stories that would drive me crazy you know i felt hugely defensive and passionate about boris and the team around us you can't help but take some of it personally you just do you know it's if someone writes a story that's wrong or that's unfair you know you take that personally you try not to but I think, yeah, particularly once you leave, you sort of take a step back and I look at sort of, you know, number 10 now and you can be far more objective. And I find myself nodding along with the lobby saying, yeah, that's probably right, you know, and <laughs> it just sort of changes. But, you, you know, it's certainly not perfect. And more broadly, Westminster in general, and speaking slightly from experience here, although not quite the same, you know, it's a kind of a weird place to work, especially if you've got a northern accent. You went to a pretty normal school. You didn't go to Oxbridge. I know all them things apply to you. Did you find that? challenging and 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 more problematic than it clearly should be i think it certainly became more of a problem it became more apparent anyway as things progressed i think you know when you're sort of fresh faced wasn't that fresh faced actually but when when you're a new advisor in sort of like defra it's sort of fine and i i think it was certainly notable in the foreign office that there was a sort of you shouldn't, you know, you necessarily shouldn't be in here, you know. You'd sort of say people, what, you know, what, what university did you go to? And, you know, I'd sort of say, you know, one of the great Staffordshire and they would just be perplexed. They were sort of waiting for which which part of, you know, Oxford or Cambridge because that's broadly what people expect. So I, I noticed it in the Foreign Office, but I think almost certainly when I arrived at Number 10 and did that job, there was a lot of initial snobbery around it, the fact that, you know, that I was doing that that particular job. We do have a massive issue in Westminster in a lack of diversity in senior roles. You know, there are too few women, there are too few people from ethnic minority backgrounds, and there is certainly an issue with people from, you know, too few sort of working class, I call normal backgrounds, I guess. A lot of the people I sort of will be working with, you know, went to the same sort of private schools, the same colleges, were in the same debating clubs, and, you know, there can be... I think a real problem with that in terms of if everybody goes has the same life experiences as a group think, I think it impacts on policy. I think it means we have often quite a London-centric view of the world. I think one of the things is, you know, we need to start with levelling up Westminster and we need to start changing where we're recruiting from. Whitehall is a long way behind business and the business community in this kind of space. Um, and I think it's, it's a long overdue, a proper reform. Despite all that, do you ever miss it? Just a little bit. <laughs> I think, of course, I mean, I have to say, um, when I was watching sort of scenes of them riding at the White House, you are a bit, you know, oh, that, that looks great. But then you imagine what all the stress is like. I remember seeing the, um, there was the whole row of the lobby and having nowhere to file after the press conference and the row with the White House team. And I thought, I'm very glad I'm not Jack Doyle today because that will not have been fun. And, and just finally on COVID, obviously you look back at, the UK response as a whole and the, the death stats for this country are pretty grim. I know you, you're in charge of comms. Are there things that you wish you'd done differently that might have saved more lives or made it go differently? Or do you feel like that was decisions other people were taking in the end? Obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, you would probably all lock down a week earlier. But again, the challenge with all of these things is just that these are big decisions that you're making in real time. So it's easy to say, but when you were there at the time in the room these were hard decisions to make and I think the public knew that 
the government had a huge, huge challenge managing COVID. I think you know, the public looked at it and thought, we don't expect you to get everything right when you're dealing with this. Were they have less sympathies on the way out, we want to make sure that, you know, you get this right. And I think in fairness, you know, you look at furlough, which on communication things like that, you know, if I was in the government still, we're talking about it an awful lot more because I think it's one of the, the biggest achievements a government's ever, um, especially a Tory government, has done, you know, managed to wrap its arms around the country in its time of need. And, of course, the vaccination rollout. I think, you know, these are things that people look at and these are the things actually people remember and think, Okay, you know, it was tough going in, but we understand why. But coming out of COVID, we think this government, you know, basically got the big things right. So that's Lee Kane, friend, ally, accomplice and spin doctor to Boris Johnson for the three most important years of his life. You'll have your own view, of course, about whether they got the big things right during a pandemic which cost more than 130,000 Britons their lives and indeed on a Brexit settlement which has not been universally acclaimed, but which did have the tiny added bonus of propelling Boris Johnson into power. What Johnson does next is anyone's guess, but his three-year journey from backbench rebel to all-powerful Prime Minister into ICU and beyond is a story which will be told and retold for many years to come. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And why not have a look back through our past episodes covering everything from the art of political drinking to the history of the German Chancellorship. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.